Welcome to Matter of Principles, a podcast from the Association of Washington School Principals. We've got some original podcasts in our feed. The podcast you're about to hear is the audio from an episode of AWSP TV, our talk show for principals. Make sure to tune in to our live episodes and catch all of our shows by subscribing to our YouTube channel. In the meantime, enjoy the audio from this episode of AWSP TV. Welcome to another episode of AWSP TV. I'm Scott Seaman, Executive Director of AWSP, and with me today in our studio is Rick Miller, the CEO, President, Founder, Creator of Kids at Hope. Rick, thanks for being here. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for the invitation. We are super excited that you're here today. I'm looking forward to a great conversation around Kids at Hope. Lots to talk about. Yeah, and for those of you that are watching this right now and you're like, what's Kids at Hope? Uh, I dare you to go back through some of our YouTube videos and find the feature video we did at Four Heroes Elementary. Um, it's a great story that captures the essence of Kids at Hope in action in a school. Good. So Rick, you're here today and we're talking about hope in education. How do we get here? Isn't that amazing though, yeah. that we have schools all across this country thanks to you and your team. Um, how do we end up with hope as yeah. something that uh, is driving schools. I, I think it's, um, it, it was just timing. I think we got tired of labeling kids as at risk. We, we began to devalue our children across the country, that there were some children that were, were worthy of our investment and some children that were worthy of us trying to repair. And we lost sight of those young people who came to us with all kinds of treasures. They just hadn't been discovered yet. But we referred to them as at risk because of the conditions from which they came. They may have come from poverty or highly mobile families or parents who weren't well educated or new to the country. Uh, there may be an alcohol problem in the family or there may be been raised in, in an area that has a high crime rate area, what, area uh, issue. But regardless of what the issue was, we stopped even looking at the kid. We only looked at the conditions from which they came and automatically labeled them as at risk and that automatically devalues them, puts them in a liability column versus an asset column. So in 1993, I brought together a group of practitioners and researchers to challenge what was then known as the youth at risk paradigm. As a matter of fact, to a great degree, still understood as the youth at risk paradigm, certain conditions that exist in children's lives that may prevent them from achieving their, their fullest potential. So we began to be concerned about that. So we challenged it, we started a research project at Arizona State University to basically better understand whether we were misrepresenting what at risk was. I thought personally that that term was abused, misused, overused, maligned, mm -hmm. and that maybe if we were to label children, why not label them with a positive perspective, an asset, a strength base? Why not label them as at hope? And when we began to look at the at hope paradigm, versus the at-risk paradigm, a whole new understanding of child and youth development came to us. And at that same time in what was happening in psychology was that we began to intersect with the field of positive psychology. Because psychology found themselves on the wrong path as well. Psychologists were looking at the pathologies that affect people's quality of life. And so they were into the repair business. And the group of psychologists began to understand that maybe we should focus on the strengths and assets people bring, not just on fixing their issues or their problems. So that field began to emerge almost at the same time 
that our research review at ASU mm. began to explore the at-risk versus the at-hope paradigm shift. And when we began to reveal that to our publics, people had a fresh view of what we could do because we realized very quickly that we didn't control the risk children come to us with, but we control the hope in which we offer them. And that became, became, began the paradigm and the shift in the way we work with young people. And I really like that, that mindset shift right there and just the terminology you're using. So a principal who's prepping their year, that's just a great reminder that, you yeah. know, it's, regardless of where these kids are coming from, we control their hope. That's right. And, and I think that empowers us because if we accept the at-risk paradigm, then we're, we're misrepresenting the power that we have. As a matter of fact, we disempower ourselves because we believe these kids come with us with conditions that we really don't have the expertise, the skill, or the time to repair when we're supposed to be doing so much other, so much other things with young people. So by looking at ourselves as not controlling the risk in children's lives, but by controlling the hope from which we off, of which we offer them, that becomes an empowering feeling and one that should kind of motivate us and excite us uh, about our work with young people. So 1993 started this journey and here we are today. Um, I fell in love with Kids at Hope years ago when I was introduced to it and I'm a full believer in the mission. Um, you've probably had to overcome some barriers and some people who have pushed back on you to say, Rick, you can't measure hope. Hope isn't a strategy. Mm -hmm. I mean, you used to hear that all the time. And in fact, I heard it at a conference just a couple weeks yeah, ago. Yeah. Oh, hope isn't a strategy. Yeah. So what do you say to those people? Yeah. So we accept things that kind of make it easy for us to, to identify the world in which we live, to define the world in which we live. So if we come up with an idea that, that hope is a feeling, not a strategy, uh, and then we accept that without further examining it. I think what, what the human being can do is, is, is look at our strongly held beliefs and wonder if those still hold water today. And one of our strongly held beliefs was that some people seem to have a lot of hope, some people seem to have a little bit of hope, and there are a lot of people who don't have hope at all. And that's not, there's nothing you can do about it. It's just the way it is in the world. When in fact the science reveals something completely different that hope is a brain process. It can be triggered, it can be activated. We, those of us that engage with other people can be, be hopologists in our own right by activating the neural pathways which creates a sense of hope and then give them the social emotional skills that come along with activating it. So can you measure hope? Absolutely you can measure hope. But first you have to understand the DNA of hope. And if we looked at the DNA of hope, we would look at a kind of a triple helix versus a double helix in terms of our human genome. But the triple helix of hope contains three strands and those three strands represent goals that hope has goals. So you can measure those people who seem to have goals versus those people who don't have goals. So if people act, actually have goals in life, then we begin to measure what those goals look like. So that's a measurement tool. So goals are one of the ways we measure a sense of hope. The other strand in this triple helix of hope are called pathways that I know I'm at point A, I want to get to point B, and I know the distance between point A and point B is not a straight line, and I may have to come up with contingency plans. So in that regard, I want to measure your sense of pathways in terms of identifying the sense of hopefulness that you have. 
do you have ideas of how you're going to get from point A to point B? How many contingency plans do you have? And the third part of hope is agency. It's in other words, it's the, it's the gas you put in your own gas tank. Are you committed to achieving the goal? So we have hope scales now that allow us to go in and measure children and adults' sense of hopefulness by looking at their goals, their pathways, and their agency. So you basically just answered, you can measure hope. You can measure hope. That's the short answer. I gave you the longer answer. Well, I wanted the long answer because there are a lot of people that probably entered yeah. into that listening. Yeah, you can't. Yeah. And, and, and you can measure hope just in listening to people's conversations. If I ask you, Scott, think of a ladder with 10 rungs on it. The lowest rung being the worst life you can live. The highest rung being the best life you can live. Without answering me directly, but just thinking about it, mm -hmm. what rung are you on today? Right. And you visualize that rung. Is it the first rung, the second rung, the third rung, the tenth rung? And usually people will find themselves somewhere in the middle. And then I would ask you the next question, Scott, within three to five years, what rung would you think you would be on? Would you be on a higher rung or on a lower rung or on the same rung? And based on your answer, if you're on a lower rung, there's a sense of hopelessness. If you're on a higher rung, there's a sense of hopefulness. And if you're on the same rung, there's a sense of being stuck. And what we would say in terms of a person who is stuck in their life, that they've run out of ideas and energy to move themselves forward. And by moving themselves forward, they run out of a sense of what their goals are, they run out of a sense of what their pathway should be, and they've not been able to refuel their psychic energy to move forward from point A to point B. So they've lacked goals, pathways, and agency. Those who are at a higher rung seem to have those things in place. And one of our, 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 our mentors in the field of hopeology, a uh, man named Shane Lopez, who mm -hmm. unfortunately we've lost a couple years ago, Shane would define hope this way. He would say, hope is the ability to believe that tomorrow will be better than today, and we have the power to make it so. Well, it's exciting that uh, we're seeing a trend across the country, and specifically here in Washington, that we just recently have started to move away from uh, putting all of our eggs in the accountability basket of testing. And there's been uh, more emphasis, especially heading into this next year, on the word you just used, yeah. pathways. Yeah. So um, I think we're in a great opportunity. A great position in the state now to start talking about hope as an indicator, um, as, as a measurement tool, um, specifically tied to pathways. So it's, it's, it's yeah, exciting to when see. You, when you look at people, when you just kind of use that broader term hope, mm -hmm. but when you look at people who seem to be hopeful in their lives, what, what are the examples of that? Well, they seem to have better relationships with loved ones and colleagues and peers. They seem to achieve more of their goals. People who are hopeful do better than people who are less hopeful in terms of achieving their goals. They seem to be healthier. They seem to live longer. They seem to be happier. Those are all associated, directly correlated with a hopeful person. If you look at people who struggle with this sense of hopefulness and are, in fact, hopeless, they seem to lack strong relationships. They seem to exist in a, in, a, in, a, in a world of sadness and depression and pessimism. They seem to not achieve their goals and they're victimized by conditions around them that they don't believe they can control. And they lack the energy to pursue things that are larger and important to, for themselves. If those are the choices I have in life, I can choose to be hopeful 
or I can choose to be hopeless. Why wouldn't I choose hopefulness? And the question that we ask of people, why wouldn't they choose hopefulness, is they never even thought about it. They thought that either comes to you, it's offered, it's a gift given to you, or it, it's not offered to you. And in fact, it's not whether it comes to you or offered, it's whether or not you personally make the choice to become hopeful or you personally make the choice to become hopeless. And one of the ways you make that choice is who you hang out with. If you hang out with hopeless people, you're more likely to be hopeless. If you hang out with hopeful people, you're more likely to be hopeful. That's a personal choice each of us makes. And sometimes we're content with heck hanging out with hopeless people and we then become hopeless and our life seems to unravel before us. Well, you have shared so much already and I can picture uh, people watching this video right now who are scrambling writing down some of the things that you've said. You've mentioned the word hopeologist. I tend to uh, introduce myself as a hopeologist just to see people's reactions. Um, you mentioned using terminology at hope versus at risk. I mean, these are just little things that our school leaders can do. Um, I love the picture of a ladder as a, an example to, um, you know, something symbolic that a school could use. Yeah, um, and, and a general litmus test, a quick litmus test. Is there a deeper uh, instrument that we need to go to and, and, and other examples? Yes, but that ladder seems to be that quick litmus, like me going to a doctor and him taking my temperature right away, or her taking my temperature, or taking my blood yeah. pressure, looking at my oxygen level. There's quick things we can do just to see where you are, and then we begin to dig a little bit deeper if we need to. So what's exciting to me, Rick, is that you're across the country. I mean, people are speaking this language of hope throughout the country. Yeah. Um, I get a lot of looks from people in our state like, oh great, here comes Scott, that hope guy again. <laughs> um, but I'm, for the record, it's not just me. That's uh, right. <laughs> so It's us now. <laughs> it's, it's all of us. So can you just share quickly some of the areas that, I mean, other parts of the country you're in, yeah. um, just to give an audi our audience an idea of yeah. how this hope gospel is spreading across yeah. the state or across the country. Yeah, I appreciate that. What, what struck me most recently is that I was in a one school, school district in, in a rural area of Arizona, Topak, Arizona, with the most enthusiastic, hopeful people you could imagine that were transforming kids' lives in a very challenging community. Mm -hmm. They had not given up on themselves, and by not giving up on themselves, then they don't give up on kids and that becomes part of a, a hope culture, right? I don't give up on myself, I don't give up on my kids. Coming to the conclusion that you can't have a kid at hope until you first have an adult at hope, right? But I went from that little Topak rural community of about 120 students in a one school, schoolhouse in a one school school district. I, the next day I was in New York City working with the country's largest school district, 1,800 schools, 1.1 million students. And the interesting thing is that hope didn't change. Mm. Hope was exactly the same. The DNA was exactly the same. The concerns and difficulties that the rural people were concerning about their future were the same issues that this very urban community, the largest city in our country with the largest school district in our country, not, if not one of the largest school districts in the world, had the same concerns about whether or not, one, that the people that were working with kids were hopeful people because you can't have a kid at hope until you first have an adult at hope. And whether or not the kids that we were working with weren't just learning reading, writing, math, and science, 
but equal to that, they were growing up to know that they can control their own destiny, yeah. that, that, that they had a future that they could envision, that they knew where they wanted to go in life. And that's more than knowing they can pass a history test. That's more than knowing that they can read at the fourth grade level. That's more than knowing that they can get into college but that they had a sense of future and the rest of what we do in schools is to give them tools so that they have the right toolkit or they right, have the right information in their backpacks so when they enter adulthood they're prepared to make a contribution. So on one hand we give them the tools which is education and the other hand we give them a sense of hopefulness which is the ideas of how they're going to use that to contribute to society as adults. Uh, so whether I'm in a Topak, Arizona, yeah. or New York City, they embrace hope the same way. It's an energizing force. It's a dynamic force that transforms lives, and people want to know how to get that. Yeah. So I'm a school leader, and I'm watching this video right now, and I'm hooked. You've got me. Um, I know I could go to one of the joint-sponsored AWSP Kids at Hope events that we've been offering each year here in Washington. Uh, where else could I go to learn a little bit more about this, this well, Kids at Hope thing? So the good news there is that we have uh, trainers across the country. We have people that will come in to your schools and your communities because at the end of the day, it does take a village to raise and educate a child. So you want to, to empower the village as much as you empower your, your certified and classified staff people to make a difference in kids' life to ensure that they're hopeful so they can teach kids to be hopeful. So we have a series of training courses that run anywhere from two and a half hours to two days to our five-day institute that we, we co-sponsor with our home university, Arizona State University, each year. So there's lots of ways to invite us into your community, set aside an, a professional development day, an in-service day, mm -hmm. and we will come in and empower you with the research, the knowledge, the principles, and the practices necessary to create a culture of hope in your schools and in your community. Um, we, we have, through your efforts and our efforts, we have a series of videos that you can find on your YouTube channel, on our YouTube channel. Uh, we have a robust website, kidsathope.org, uh, that you can go to and have all kinds of resource and contact information as you begin your journey into this dynamic, this energy force, this field of being hopeful and how important that is to our human condition. Right on. Uh, the other day I was wearing my t-shirt that I got from one of our elementary schools in our state and on the front of the shirt it says, I'm a kid at hope. Yeah. <laughs> and on the back it says, treasure hunter. Yes. Uh, and I loved walking through Lowe's this last Saturday as people did a double take at, at my I'm a kid at hope shirt. Um, those are terms that I know pretty well and understand, yeah. but what does it mean for an adult to be a treasure hunter? Yeah, that's a wonderful, wonderful question. So in our society, we have over-professionalized our work with kids. We have social workers and school psychologists and reading specialists and counselors and math specialists. We have specialists that focus on a particular area. And we think that's important. We, we want to drill down and offer as much information and content and understanding within the subject matters necessary, again, to navigate life. So within that professionalism, we kind of separate you from everybody else that does something different. So you're an executive director, that someone else is an operations director, someone else is a specialist, someone else is a teacher, someone else is a school psychologist. So we've created all these bureaucratic titles. 
and those bureaucratic titles has to do with our job functions. We believe within our, our understanding of culture that there should be a cultural title that each of us has. And we believe that cultural title that we're offering is treasure hunter. And why? Because we believe there's two types of kids that come to us. The first type of kid comes to us with gifts. They're socially gifted, they're athletically gifted, they're musically gifted, they're academically gifted. Those kids are fun to teach, coach, coach instruct, and mentor. So those kids, we know who, are, who they are and they're gonna do well and they're gonna be on the honor roll and they're gonna be talking about the colleges and the careers they wanna pursue. They come to us with gifts and great sense of hopefulness and anticipation and optimism. But there's another population of kids who come to us with treasures. And treasures by its own connotation are something that are difficult to find. Yeah. You have to be a treasure hunter to be able to know that you have to invest in trying to find the treasures. And in many of the young people that we serve that you serve, that your schools serve, those treasures are deeply buried. And, and, and a teacher alone cannot find that treasure, and, and an administrator alone can't find that treasure because that may not be part of their job description, but a person who sees themselves as a treasure hunter is a person that will not give up on that child until that treasure is discovered. And the other interesting thing, if we create a culture of treasure hunters, if I can't seem to find that treasure in a young person, I'll find someone within my treasure hunter team to find that treasure. If I can't find a way to, to teach this child to read, I will call upon a reading specialist. If I can't find this treasure, I just don't have one person in my organization, my staff, and my school, my agency. I have the entire organization that sees themselves as their bureaucratic responsible position that formal title we all are given when we get a job and equal to that to the cultural position that we take when we work with kids and that is we don't give up on kids until we find the treasure. No child is allowed to leave the front porch of our schoolhouse until that treasure is discovered and who usually discovers a treasure is someone who sees themselves as a treasure hunter. So we want you to see yourself as an executive director and a treasure hunter, as a teacher and a treasure hunter, a principal and a treasure hunter, a police officer, because we've trained lots of police officers uh, in the course of our work, a police officer and a treasure hunter. We have a community of treasure hunters, and that guarantees that no child leaves the front porch of our communities without their treasures being discovered. So people watching right now might get, okay, now they've lost me. <laughs> but having been there and seen it, I believe it. So can you share an example of a school where you've walked in and you meet the chief treasure hunter and you, <laughs> you've seen that terminology uh, at life yeah. in the school? Can you share an example of, of I'm sure you've seen hundreds, but yeah. so what does it look like? Yeah, so there's activating hope, right? So it's one thing to understand it's theoretical constructs. Mm -hmm. It's another thing to understand the research components. What, what is it that the research revealed to us? It's one thing to understand its, its, its framework. And then there's something completely different that you're striking at. What are the principles and practices? How do I see, smell, taste, touch, and hear a place of hope? And I think my best description of that is when I walk into a Catholic church, I should know I'm in a Catholic church. Mm -hmm. I should see the symbolism. I should hear the language of Catholicism. I should see saints. I should see a crucifix. I should see stained glass windows. I should smell incense. I should see holy water. 
I should know I'm, I'm in a Catholic church. If I walk into a Jewish synagogue, I should have a different experience. I should see a Star of David. I should see a Torah. I should see a Talmud. Uh, I, I just should see a, something that represents the symbolism of that. When I walk into a Kids at Hope school, how do I know I'm in a place of hope? And the first thing that you would see is an expression, welcome to our school. We believe all our kids are at hope. Welcome to our school. This is a place where not only do we have certified and classified staff, equal to that, all of our people are treasure hunters. Welcome to our school. Listen to the pledge of our children. They've understood the science of self-talk. They will talk about themselves as kids at hope. I am talented, smart, and capable of success. They will use the science of self-talk. Listen to our adults, whether they be the custodian or the first grade or second grade teacher or middle school teacher or principal. Listen to them talk about themselves as treasure hunters, right? Uh, look at the report cards that we offer children. We have the traditional report card, but equal to that once a year, we give them a Kids at Hope report card that focuses just on their talents and assets. It's a day where every child is perfect. Every child deserves one day a year where they're perfect. The other 364 days a year, you can do better on your homework. Don't forget to study for your test. Pull your pants up. Don't use that language in front of me. I mean, we can give them all kinds of instructions and, and, and information. But once a year, it's just about the, the strengths and assets and talents and treasures of that kid. So you'll see that in, in operation. You'll see kids leaving the school year with a passport to the future that not only did they pass their courses, but they have a vision of what their life is gonna look like, not just in a college and career setting, but what their life is gonna look like in their home and family. What position will they take as adults in home and family? Their position in the community, how will they as citizens help their community be, be a better community? They will have a sense of their education career, because that's standard, and that they'll also, always, also have a sense of their own hobbies and recreation. They will understand that, that they're empowered to enjoy the quality of life, that they can explore other things that go beyond home, family, education, career, and community and service. Things I do for myself to fill my spiritual, my spiritual vessel. Mm -hmm. And those are the manifestations, the principles and practices that we would look for so that when we say we're a Kids at Hope school, what are the principles and practices of that? One is celebrating the belief, Two is the power of self-talk. Three is that you're actually identifying strengths and assets in children. Four is you're giving them a document that helps them focus on their future. And the fifth one that we do, we actually track relationships. We believe hope becomes through relationships with people. If I learn my native tongue of English, it's because my parents spoke English to me. So I'm mimicking my parents to pick up their, their language, a very sophisticated skill set for human beings. So we understand that hope is taught and learned. If we understand that, which is a truism, if we understand that, which is a scientific fact, that hope is taught and learned, then the question is, who teaches our children about hope? And can you teach something you don't know? If you yourself aren't a hopeful person, how do you teach a child about the strategies associated with hope? If you yourself don't know what shoe goes on the right foot, what shoe goes on the left foot, how do you teach a child what shoe goes on the right foot what shoe goes on the left foot. So we have to be cognizant of the types of people we're surrounding our kids with because if they're hopeful people, they be, the kids be, become more likely to be hopeful 
develop the skills and the, and, and the characteristics of hope. And if we're surrounding our, our kids with hopeless people, then the kids will mimic those characteristics, those behaviors as well. Sold. <laughs> I know. So I'm selling myself again. <laughs> so I want this in my school. Yeah. Um, what can I expect? I mean, what roadblocks, what bumps in the road, what, what am yeah. I going to encounter? What can I expect as I head down this yeah. road? I th think that's a critical question because at the first glance when somebody offers something out of the ordinary, something different, oh, yeah. regardless of how powerful and dynamic it may sound, and I hope it does sound dynamic and, and quite uh, innovative, innovative um, the first thing people are going to react to is, is this more work to do? Is, is this going to burden my people? I it's ask, another initiative. It's another initiative. It's the revolving door of the, the best idea of the week, and it's going to come in, and it's going to go out. And those are real, true concerns. I mean, we, we need to address those. But once you kind of get into the understanding and the depths of Kids Hope, you got to kind of get underneath the hood a little bit, and not just accept this as the knee-jerk reaction, anything that may be new seems to be uh, more burdensome on our plate. And we hope that you see Kids at Hope as a stronger plate. Mm -hmm. That it's not more to do, it's a better way of doing what you're already doing. We also have the uh, understanding that a lot of people out there already are practicing Kids at Hope. We say practicing Kids at Hope without a license. They intuitively or intellectually <laughs> understand that, that they, they can directly influence a child's sense of hopefulness by modeling what hope looks like by believing in kids, by connecting with kids, and by teaching them what we haven't talked about yet, which is mental time travel, which is our synonym for hope. Hope is the, is the neurobiological process of manifesting hope through, the, through our, our neural pathways in our brain. We call that ex expression, that process, mental time travel. Mental time travel, the ability to see the future come up with a pathway to achieve the goals that I envision in the future and make the conscious commitment to creating the energy force necessary to achieve those goals. That happens in the brain. We know where it happens in the brain. We know how to trigger it in the brain. But again, when you kind of come up with a package that we're talking about, how do you, how do you implement hope, you begin to understand maybe you don't implement it because curriculums you implement programs you implement, but we're not talking about neither curriculum or programs. What we're talking about is culture. We're talking about something that everybody invests in, not just the specialists in the reading program or the math program or the administrative program. That, that culture is, is, a, is, a, is a, uh, uh, a participatory effort, not a spectator effort, right? So everyone's empowered to make a difference. And those people have to be agreeable that, that tomorrow in their school will be better than today and they have the power to make it so. It's not the administrators have the power to make it so. It's not the school board that has the power to make it so. That, that tomorrow could be a much more hopeful day for all of, ourselves, all of us, the adults and the children, and we have the power to make it so. Why wouldn't you want to grab onto that, right? Because that's not more to do. That's the important thing that we should be doing mm -hmm. on the front end. So we see Kids at Hope as the, as the plate or the strengthening of the plate, not the items on the plate. 
Yeah, and I would say as a principal, I was pra probably practicing hope without, without a license. license right. um, but, you know, it fits perfectly, and that's probably why I was so enamored with Kids at Hope from the beginning, because it is a culture. Yeah. And we believe in the school leader paradigm that it starts with culture. Yep. That's the foundation. And then what you've described are the systems that you put in place to foster and nurture and sustain that culture. And then the belief is manifested in the learning, the hope, et cetera, whatever you want to put in the middle. In this case, That's right. it's hope. Yeah, and, and that's manifested by the people themselves yes. that have bought into the idea that tomorrow can be better than today and we have the power to make it so. And that's an empowering feeling. And a person that has that feeling, that sense, that's a hopeful person. And a person that doesn't have that feeling or that sense, that's a hopeless person. So the question we would have for people who work with other people's kids, are you hiring hopeful people mm. or hopeless people? And how do you know the difference? How do you know the difference? And that becomes critical in terms of creating a culture because hopeful people create a hopeful culture. Hopeless people create a hopeless culture. Naysayers create a naysayer culture. Empowering people create an empowering culture. That has nothing to do with the school strategy or business plan or administrative plan or staffing structure. That has everything to do with the heart and passion of the people that you hire. Well, one of my not-so-secret goals is to have hope as one of the indicators that we measure as a state. So just imagine if schools had a hope score and um, everyone was accountable to that. So like we had a number or some sort of way of indicating that what's the level of hope that the adults are feeling in this building. And there were strategies that were supports that were put in place to support the culture of hope with adults. Yes. Um, so that's the dream. Right. Do you see anybody that's leading with hope as an accountability score or in the, across the state or across the country yet? I think we, we, we have a lot of great indicators that are beginning to emerge. Mm -hmm. Now we're, we're fighting a little bit of an uphill battle because we have bought so much into the at-risk paradigm right. and we have bought into the trauma-informed paradigm that it's like buying into the hammer is our only tool and therefore, if our hammer is our only tool, then everything looks like a nail to us. And what Kids at Hope brings and what the whole science of hope brings is a whole nother perspective. We believe that there's two sides to every coin. And let's say in this case, uh, the child, the young person, the student is the coin. On one side, you can look all day long at their risk factors and their trauma, or you can flip that coin over and look at their asset, their strengths, what we would call the kind of the hope score that you're looking at. And then we would look at the person holding the coin and whether that person is a treasure hunter mm. or just a, a, a person who performs a specific function within their organization. And we hope that person is looking at both sides of the coin, not ignoring the risk and not ignoring the trauma, but realizing they don't control either the risk or the trauma. What they control is on the flip side, the of the, of the coin, they're controlling a sense of hope for kids. So when, when you, we look at those schools and organizations that are modeling it, we see three parts of the way that we would culturally understand that hope score. Number one, we would look at whether or not the people who are working with kids believe all kids are capable of success, no exceptions. I was wondering when we were gonna, <laughs> gonna hear that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think when we look at the hope score, yeah. 
that's one of the things that we would like to better understand. Are we surrounding our people with people who truly believe in kids? Do they believe some kids will do well and other kids won't? Or do, or do they have a sense that all kids will do well? Because once they believe in kids, we then understand they'll make a greater investment in that child than if they didn't believe in kids. Why would you invest in a child you don't believe you're going to get a return on investment from? So we unconsciously began to hold back our investment in that child, not believing we're going to get a return on investment, and take that energy and focus on kids that we believe will have a return on investment. If that's the case, we'll end up where we started. Some kids will do well and some kids won't do well. We're trying to change the paradigm. So the first thing is we're going to measure belief systems. Are we surrounding our kids, who our kids with adults who believe in them? The second thing we're going to measure is whether kids are connected in meaningful ways with caring adults. We met someone on your staff that focuses on those relationships. No significant learning happens without a significant relationship. James Comer, Nell Nodding is one of the great educational philosophers of our time, said when kids know you like them, when kids know you really like them, they'll do odd things for you like multiply fractions, right? It's always the relationship that triggers a child's quest and, and, and interest in learning, not the subject matter itself. And so that becomes important. So the belief, the connect, and then we want to be able to measure a sense of time travel. Going back to how do you measure hope is knowing whether these kids have goals, they have pathways, and they have uh, a sense of the energy necessary to achieve their goals. So back to the specific question, it always takes me a long time to get there. <laughs> so we've, we've, we have a lot of studies that Kids and Hope has embarked on over the years, a, a couple of them where we worked with a school which was the 28th worst performing school in a school district of 28 schools. When we first interviewed the principal, he said, I was, uh, um, I, the, school the school that I was going to work at was identified as the armpit of the school district. Five years later, that school became the top performing school in the school district. It went from 28th perform worst performing to the number one top performing school. And the researchers asked the question, how did that happen? And it happened two ways. Number one, principal leadership. A principal who knew that tomorrow would be better than today and he had the power to make it so, but couldn't do it alone. You're gonna make me tear up, but keep going. <laughs> that he had the power to make it so, and, but he couldn't do it alone, right? Mm -hmm. So he needed other people's buy-in. And that became a cultural commitment, not a bureaucratic commitment. Yeah. That he invested in professional development. He identified the vision where all kids are capable of success in our school, and he brought in Kids at Hope, he brought in the, the actualization, the, the professional development experience. And then the toughest part, there were some people who had to leave that school that couldn't buy into the vision. They couldn't accept the fact that all kids were capable of success, no exceptions. So they were gonna hold you back, and he couldn't afford to be held back by any naysayers because his work was so important, the work of the community and particularly to the lives of these students who were just beginning life's journey to give up on them too early. So some people had to leave. And over five years, because he couldn't implement Kids at Hope, he couldn't uh, initiate Kids at Hope, he actually had to grow Kids at Hope. He had to be patient but not passive in his way. And within five years, that school became the top performing school. Wow. So I have a whole bunch of principals that are prepping for the year. Yeah. And they're heading in and they, they have uh, 
pressures to reduce suspensions, change their discipline practices. Um, MTSS is a big influence in the system right now. Um, what advice would you have for them? First of all, I would say you have to believe that tomorrow will be better than today. Yeah. And that you have the power to make it so. And that you have two sets of tools. You have two toolkits available to you. One is your bureaucratic toolkit. You, you can ch change policies, procedures, rules, regulations, and they're going to have, it's going to have some effect. But the other toolkit you have that's the underutilized toolkit is your culture. That if you can empower your people and have a shared vision, because what you, what you need is you, you know, you have to decide as a principal whether you're going to be a leader or whether you're going to be a manager. If you're going to be a manager, you're going to gravitate to the bureaucratic side. You're going to try to find the right procedure, process, uh, staffing pattern, rules, regulations. You're going, to, you're going to focus on the bureaucratic answer. But if you're a leader, you're going to look at the, at the cultural answer. You're going to make sure you have the right people on your bus. And you're going, to, you're going to challenge them because most people want to work in a hopeful environment. Uh, they have just had a part of that eroded from their vision of what work looks like and what <laughs> education looks like. Over time, that's just been eroded. You've got to restore that. That's what, a, that's what a leader does, not a manager, but a leader. So you have to decide, you know, what, what part of you is going to be the dominant side. Good principals are both leaders and managers, but there's usually one dominant side to a principal. And we would suggest that you could get a lot of support staff in terms of managing the organization, but there's usually just one leader that can, has to step forward and people have to emulate that leader and that's a leader that believes tomorrow is going to be better today and that they have the power with you, with their staff, to make it so. And what great point. Um, our principals in our state are, are evaluated on how they engage the community. And they can't do that as a manager. Mm -hmm. They have to do that as a leader. Uh, one of the things that I was really struck by when I attended your Master's Institute in May, just a little shameless plug for the Master's Please. Institute in May, um, it was one of the first times I've been to a professional learning event, a conference, where it wasn't just educators That's in the right. room. That's right. Um, who else was in that room? Yeah. Well, when you talk about engaging a community around yeah. this practice, this daily practice of hope, who else was in that room, Rick? Yeah. So. I think that's, that's a unique part of what Kids at Hope has brought to the table, particularly in the field of child and youth development and education, is that it's the same child. It's the child that goes to school that's going to be in your child welfare system. It's the child that goes to school that may be caught up in the juvenile justice system. It's the child that goes to school that's in all the after-school programs not run by your school, the Boys and Girls Clubs, the YMCA, the sporting pro It's the same kid. But are we as professionals on the same page? And more times than not, the educators retreat to education conferences to learn education strategies. The child welfare people retreat to child welfare pro uh, conferences to learn child welfare strategies, same for juvenile justice people and sporting people, and yet it's the same kids. But what would be that common strategy that we can all use? So we're, we're a non-sector specific initiative. It's not just education, it's not just child welfare, it's not just juvenile justice. So our master's institute we hold in the early spring, usually the first or second week in May, uh, it'll be May 3rd through 8th. 
2020, <laughs> if I can get my shameless plug in there along with yours. Uh, we, we invite uh, educators, we invite the juvenile justice field. Uh, we'll have judges there, we'll have probation officers there, we'll have detention officers there. We invite the child welfare sector, we'll have uh, case workers there, we'll have social workers there. We invite the YMCA's and Boys and Girls Club. We have youth professionals and youth specialists all hearing the same message and understanding that they are the villagers that are supposed to raise the village, uh, raise the child in the village. So if it takes a village, it doesn't mean that the educators separate themselves from everybody else in the village or the juvenile justice system does the same or the child welfare system does the same or even the family does the same, but that we come together to learn what we can do together collaboratively that no one else can do alone and what we can do together collaboratively that none of our sectors can do alone is we can raise an educated child not one group it has that re direct responsibility it's a community responsibility bring the community together to learn from each other how that is to be done so a great move for a principal would be to gather all those stakeholders in their respective community to come in and at least learn yep. the language yep. the vision um, and probably challenge that belief about do we really believe in all kids no exceptions? Yeah, and it, and it's a community language. Yeah. I mean, you, in education you would, you would talk about pedagogy. In the community you won't talk about pedagogy. You'll just talk about kids, and you wouldn't use the title of, of a reading specialist or a math specialist. You use the title of treasure hunters because that becomes a community language. And and yes, kids at hope works best. Hope works best when it is applied to all parts of our life, where wherever I go, I'm looked at as a kid at hope. Yeah. Wherever I go, I see myself as a treasure hunter, not just as a reading specialist or a principal or an assistant principal. That this is my community responsibility is to not to let any child leave without discovering the treasures and giving them a sense of hope, which means giving them a sense of their future, a strategy to achieve the goals in the future, and the necessary energy that they need to understand to invest to achieve their goals in the future. If given that choice, why wouldn't you accept that? Why wouldn't you exercise that? Because the opposite would be true. So that becomes the issue of the day. Once you understand the power of hope and that you yourself, you the principal of the school, can make this part of a community effort and what the results of that would be, once you understand that, why wouldn't you accept it? Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't you choose it? And there's where your choice comes in, that I can choose to create in my school a, a place where, this, where hope lives. Hope lives in my school, that's pretty powerful. And equal to hope living in my school, I'm gonna make sure hope lives in my community. Or, now that you understand this, I've chosen not to go down that route. I've chosen not to make this a place where where every kid succeeds, no exceptions. And that becomes an ethical question that we all have to answer in our own lives. Mm -hmm. When I know I can, I can eat a Big Mac every day or maybe eat broccoli, that may, my body may want you know, to be healthier. Once I, I can make those choices, this is the same choice in terms of, of our, the type of life we want to live yeah. and the type of world we want to live in. So Rick, I've got two more questions for you. Um, What advice would you give a principal who's watched this video, is their mind's kind of spinning right now around all the things they've heard? Um, things that they could do right now. I mean, 
whether they've been to an institute, I mean, obviously they haven't been into an institute or a training yet, but what, what would you tell them to do right now? I'm gonna, I'm gonna steal some words from a, from a colleague of mine and say, you have to say goodbye to your past to be able to say hello to your future. So whatever didn't work in the past, say goodbye to it. L let it be in the past where it belongs and then say hello to your future. And hello to your future is the power that you have to make a difference. Come up with a plan. Use that bureaucratic side, you know how to plan. Mm -hmm. Come up with a schedule. Uh, invite us out to do a training. Hear the message uh, in a deeper way than we can present today uh, during the interview. Uh, lead by example. Uh, be there for the training. Don't send your people because they need it and you don't. We all need it. We all need to do all this together. All treasure hunters. All treasure hunters. We need to do this together. Model it for your community inside the school before you ask the community to join you. So we want the community to see how this is modeled before you invite the community because they will understand whether you're doing this with great sincerity and authenticity or you're doing it because this is just the, the, your good idea of the weak syndrome yeah. playing there. So the simple, the simple concept is, is empower your staff and how do we as a, a profession empower our staff? We train them. We give them new information, new skills, and new knowledge, and new insights. And I think that's the first step. Understand that you're not implementing Kids at Hope. All you're doing is getting a seed. You have to plant that seed in your own soil. We'll give you watering instructions. We'll tell you how to fertilize it, how to instruct. But we're not, we can't come back and water it for you. Mm -hmm. You have to water it for you. We'll come back and offer you some technical support to that because we want that seed to germinate and to create you know, beautiful flowers and blossoms as much as you do, but it requires a, a, a level of commitment, understanding, patience, but and energy. My last question, Rick. Yes, sir. Nobody comes into the studio without answering this question. So as I travel, I like to ask people this question because the answer is pretty telling on what kind of principle they might have had while they were in school. Yeah. Um, lots, of peop lots of times we get asked who our favorite teacher was, but we're rarely asked who our favorite principal was. Yeah. So um, I'm gonna put you on the spot and I'm gonna ask you to think back through your, your own journey, uh, whether that's through your own schooling or what you've witnessed <laughs> in your work. Um, do you have a favorite principal out there and why? I had three favorite principals. I had an elementary school principal, a middle school principal, and a high school principal that are significant in my life. Uh, I asked the question in my workshops, who are the people that you believe are successful uh, and who are the people that you believe are significant. I think you, you do the same thing. And all three of my principles were, were significant and they, they, they are part of my autobiography, so to speak. Uh, my elementary school principal, Mrs. Colstead, uh, was a person that, that, that offered me compassion and discipline. When I was doing well, she was, she was compassionate and supportive. When I was doing badly, uh, she told me what the consequences could be. And she was very balanced in those two approaches. So, and she was fair and honest in those two approaches. So we did treat us differently, uh, didn't have favorites, but said, here's, here's where, how you deserve praise and here's how you deserve consequences. Still very telling in my, my, my mind's eye of that. Uh, my uh, middle school principal, Mr. Knight, uh, Mr. Knight was uh, uh, 
one that showed a lot of passion in what he did. He loved the school and he demonstrated in everything he did. He loved the school and he wanted the school to achieve great things and he was always visible. So I remember him not being locked in the office, but him being visible in our lives. So that become important. Yeah. The high school principal, Mr. Tansy, right? I actually had two, Mr. Purdy and Mr. Tansy, but Mr. Tansy was, was part of my sophomore, junior and senior years. Uh, Mr. Tansy uh, was a magician and he would come in and do magic from time to time. Just show that side of him, show the human side of him. So we, we, we sometimes see our principals and professionals in education as separate from our daily lives. But Mr. Tansley humanized himself, and the way he did that is that he would come into the classrooms and perform magic for us. Uh, that uh, sparked my interest, and I became a, a hobbyist in magic. Uh, and I'll thank Mr. Tansley for that. And he too was, was visible. I think high school principals are expected to be visible at extracurricular and football games and this and that, but he, he, there was another side to Mr. Tansy that, that just seemed to be very human in, in my recollection of him. Well, what great words, great reminders for our principals that are watching. Uh, Rick, on behalf of the million and a half students we have in our state that are in our public system and all our principals that are working hard for kids, we can't thank you enough for the work you've done across the country um, in leading this work around hope. Uh, it really is making a, a difference, and I think you and I live in the same world. We do. We dream someday that every every school is a kids at hope school. Yeah, and 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 every school truly believes in all its kids, connects with all its kids, and every kid in that school becomes a time traveler. They have a wonderful sense of their future, and they use that energy to propel them into all their contributions when they become adults. Yeah. So we're proud to partner with you, Scott, and your association, and. Thank you for your leadership. Uh, this isn't a one-man band by any stretch of the imagination, and each of us has to play a different instrument, but we're playing off the same sheet of music, yeah. and when we do, it makes a beautiful sound, and that sound is resonating across the country from our work and your work and people like us that share a common passion. So from the bottom of our heart, our collective heart, our hopeful hearts, thank you for all you do. Well, let's keep doing it. Yeah. Well, that's it for all of us here at AWSP TV. Thanks for tuning in. If you want to learn more about Kids at Hope, it's a quick Google search and you get lots of information. You can attend their Master's Institute in May. In uh, Washington this next year, we'll be holding a couple more Building Hope Together workshops with our partners with WA uh, and AWSP. So there are lots of ways to learn more. There Thanks is. for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. To catch all of our episodes, subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel so you can watch AWSB TV and our other great video content. If you have ideas for guests or topics you'd like to hear about, shoot me an email at david at awsp.org. We'll do our best to make it happen. On behalf for all of us at AWSP, we hope you tune in again. Keep up the great work for kids, and we'll see you next time.